and welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose, and I am your host. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode, we take on a specific possible or not-so-possible future scenario. And this episode, we're actually not going to start in the future like we normally do. Instead, we're going to start in April of 2005. One of the challenges for me, whenever I'm explaining what perplexity is or, you know, what what was it, how did it work, what did it do, is, is just trying to figure out where do I even begin talking about it because it had so many weird angles, you know. This is Scott Myers. He's a software developer. And in April of 2005, a new game that he had been waiting for was released. It was called Perplex City, or as he says it, Perplexity. Huh, you know, I didn't I didn't think about that, actually. Yeah, I guess I guess uh, I pronounce it just perplexity. But it's true, I guess. I mean, I mean, it is clearly it is perplex city. It's this city of, you know, perplexing stuff. Perplex City was a long term alternate reality game. We take the idea that that the world is your playground and we can do anything in it. And maybe instead of having uh, our, our, our normal humdrum daily jobs where we go about doing boring things like boring people, we kind of get to be these secret agents or we get to be covert operatives or we get to be people who are just communicating with people in a different place who know secret codes and we're, we might be tapped for, for special operations at any moment. Alternate reality games, or ARGs, have been around for a while. The earliest versions existed before the internet and relied on communication through letters, payphones, and newspaper classifieds. In 2001, one of the first online ARGs, called The Beast, coined the phrase, this is not a game, an idea that is usually central to these experiences. Like many ARGs, Perplex City was big and complicated. It had all kinds of layers and ways to play, but the basic storyline was a mystery that players had to solve. The hook to perplexity is that um, there's this cube, and it was a really long time before we knew what what what, what kind of cube. But it's a cube, um, and it turned out it's it's a yeah it's a physical cube that was stolen. It was stolen from the academy, and no one knew what the academy was and how was it stolen. What's this cube, and what is it? Where is it? Ah, but where is it? That's the that's the question. And whoever found the cube didn't just get the satisfaction of winning the game. They would also win £100,000, which at the time was close to $200,000. Oh, by the way, there's money, there's actual money online. So that was, that was, that was, that was exciting. That was, that was a big draw. There were a bunch of different ways you could play Perplexity. Sometimes there were live events put on by the game makers. Where we all get together and we just we just you know we just have some drinks and have a good time, um, and then someone drops a secret note that that has a secret message that has an encrypted thing, and suddenly the room goes you know goes crazy with like oh my god what does this mean oh my heavens. The game also posted regular updates online and sent out clues by email. So for me to play, what I would do is is I would then you know go about just just trying to digest it all and make sense of it and and put it into this wiki to make sense of it kind of like very similar to to Wikipedia right I was just uh, chronicling the world just what what was going on in this place. Scott wound up becoming the editor of the Perplex City Wiki, chronicling everything he could find about the game, and pretty quickly players from all over the world started joining. At the time. I didn't really think of myself as being a puzzle person. Um, you know, when you're with an art community, it's people from tons of different and fascinating backgrounds and disciplines. And that was the part that was really intriguing to me, right? It's the the idea of all of these people coming together for the limited amount of time that the game is running to work toward a common goal. This is Laura E. Hall, a game designer and the author of a recent book about escape rooms called Planning Your Escape. Eventually, Perplex City got so big that it spawned its own separate message board forum, um, the Perplexorum. So every time there was a scrap of new intel, Scott would diligently update the wiki and players would gather on the forum and discuss this latest clue. And along with the various events and updates online, there was another piece of the game. Perplexity released puzzle cards in foil packs, so you could go to a real-life store and buy them. These cards also did contain clues that might help you find the cube. There was ultraviolet ink on a couple of cards that, that, that you know, only if you have a, 
Only if you have a black light, you can you can you can find the 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 hidden message, that kind of thing. There were two hundred and fifty six cards in total, and they ranged in difficulty from red easiest all the way up to silver, which are the sort of nearly impossible ones. And when Laura says impossible, in some cases she really means impossible. One of them is to solve the Riemann hypothesis, which is like an impossible math problem, right? They're numbered from one. Is, is a, a very simple red card would be number one, all the way up to number two, 256. Um, Satoshi, by the way, is number 256. So we expect it to be a very hard puzzle. <laughs> we expect it to be a very challenging thing that people are going to take years to solve. And that Satoshi card that Scott is talking about, that's the card that got me interested in perplexity. The card is actually called Billion to One. On it, there's a selfie of a man um, taken with a very distinctive European background. Um, Down the side in Japanese writing, it says, find me. And then at the time, there was a hint line that was running for the game. And the hint for this card was, my name is Satoshi. So all you have is this man's face, the location that he was in, and the name. Now, Laura wasn't initially super drawn to this particular card. There was a whole other game to play, a cube to find, and a reward to be won. I mean, it was always an interesting challenge. I always thought it was cool. Um, But for a while, you know, we were, as a community, just sort of looking at what was left to do, right? You know, there's the ongoing game, the interactions with the characters, the sort of story of their lives playing out. And then on the side is these puzzle cards, right? And... You know, there were sort of a core group of people that were tackling all of the silver ones and trying to move that forward. The official perplexity game ended in 2007. A man named Andy Darley found the cube buried in a park in England and won the prize money. The team that created the game tried to do a second season, but ended up canceling it before it even started. But even after the game officially ended, there were still these silver cards that hadn't been solved. For the longest time, there were only uh, about four cards that, that were unsolved. So so there's the Ryman equation, which is actually unsolvable. There was this card called the 13th Labor, um, which is a reference to a, a Herculean th- uh, feat. Her- Hercules had, had the, the 12 labors of Hercules, and we were proposing a, a 13th one, which was to, to basically decrypt a, a, a string of numbers. Um, and that was incredibly difficult. And this other one that, that, that basically for a very long time was unsolved and it just amounted to a particular cipher using a particular deck of cards. And it was just it was just a very difficult puzzle that took a long time to solve. Someone solved the deck of cards puzzle later in 2007. The game makers sort of soft retracted the Riemann hypothesis card. And then someone finally solved the 13th labor card three years after the cube had been found. By 2010, the only silver card left to be solved was billion to one. And it was just like, okay, Satoshi, where are you, man? Somebody had started a website that had a a premise of there's reward money, and then everybody in the chain who helps actually locate this person will split that reward. Now, Laura had some questions about this card. Did this guy consent to this? Did he know all of these people were looking for him? She didn't want to work on something that was invading someone's privacy. So she reached out to the organizers and asked. And they confirmed that he consented to it and knew that people were looking. At the time, also, the way that cards were solved was that they would resolve to a keyword or a code of some kind that you would enter into a website. And so the idea for that card was that he knew the answer to a question that you had to ask him in person. So he carried that password with him the whole time. And so Laura got involved and started coordinating the search, updating a website called findsatoshi.com. That was in 2006. I didn't doubt that it was possible. I knew it would be a challenge. I did not think it would be a 14-year-long challenge. That's right. It took 14 years to find this man. And the entire time, Laura never gave up. And the way they found him is fascinating. And a little bit terrifying. So here's what happened. The spirit of the card was the concept of six degrees of separation, this idea that all people are on average six or fewer social connections away from one another. And it was in some ways a test of early social networks. 
Could enough people share this image that someone who knew this person would be like, oh, hey, I know that guy. And then they could contact him that way. So in the early days, really the strategy was just get it in front of as many eyes as possible, right? So that meant putting all of the info on the website, um, trying to translate that into different languages. I was on the news randomly talking about it. And yeah, we, we sent out press releases, really. It was a sort of traditional campaign to get the word out about something. Laura did radio interviews and YouTube interviews and posted all over the place. She even visited the place in the background of the image on the card. In the background of the picture, there's this sort of storybook-looking village. It's on a river. The photo's taken from a bridge. And there's these sort of, like, very cute little houses. And I, I can't remember exactly who found it. It was somebody on one of the forums, but they identified the background as being Kaisersberg in Alsace, um, in France. And I actually, I mean, completely by coincidence, was in that area for a work trip. And my boss drove me over and we found the bridge that the photo was taken from. Like That's the kind of stuff my mind still boggles a bit about the coincidence of that happening didn't travel a lot for that job. And so for this random meeting to take place there at that time is still pretty wild. (laughs) And that was actually one of the more exciting events in the hunt for a while. Other than that, there was kind of nothing. No leads, just silence. And that was how it was for years. Every so often, some unsolved mystery show would come across the story and feature it, and Laura would always say yes, hoping that maybe this time someone would recognize Satoshi. So when she got a request early last year from a YouTube channel called Inside a Mind, Laura again said yes. And you're still looking looking for him to this day, correct? Yes. I, I don't think that I will ever stop until this is done. I would love for there to be a community of people who are like, dedicated to respectfully looking for this person. If you ever feel like joining in the hunt to find this mysterious person, then you can do just one simple thing. Spread the word. This was right at the beginning of the pandemic, of course, and lockdown for a lot of people. And so I think it was sort of a perfect storm of getting it in front of a lot of people all at once. And in a time where people perhaps had more time on their hands and more time at their computers. I found a really interesting video about this this story about um, this man who's not been found for so many years. And of course, the story of Laura, who's who's looking for him um, all this time and, uh, and stuff. This is Tom Lucas Sager, a technologist from Germany. So he saw this video and he was like, huh. That's interesting. But then he actually forgot about it for a while. I mean, there are so many weird and cool things you come across online, right? You cannot investigate them all. He didn't remember it until he went home for Christmas and his family started talking about this weird thing that had happened to his sister. She received a letter from people she didn't know and she was opening it up and it said that they found a message in a bottle that she threw in the water like 14 years ago. And now they, they, yeah, they found the letter again. So they did not find it 14 years. Uh, 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 they found it 14 years ago when she threw it in the water and then they forgot about it. And then she, they, they wrote her this message. And hearing them talk about this, all he could think about was Satoshi. So I, I, I went home that evening and I, I thought, okay, I can give it a try. Now, A lot has changed since 2006. And so the first thing Tom tried wasn't Facebook or LinkedIn or a press release. Instead, he went to a website called PimEyes, which is a facial recognition system. And he plugged in the picture of Satoshi. So I I uploaded the picture to to PimEyes and the third result was looking kind of okay. So I I uploaded this to Reddit and and said that I tried this, if anyone else tried it. I just wanted to start a conversation. I just wanted to get involved into this uh, uh, thing. And I was not really sure that it was him. It was just, okay, the AI says it it could be him. So yeah, okay. 
in this picture, there is a group of people, and on the end is a guy that does look a lot like Satoshi holding a beer. And uh, then I later found out that someone in the company was called Satoshi. But Tom actually didn't think it was him. Yeah, okay, there's someone called Satoshi, but it could not be him because he's the executive of such a big uh, corporation. And he's standing there, I think, I don't know, as, as sweatpants. He was wearing some kind of sweatpants or so uh, with a beer. So the next question was, was this man, this particular Satoshi, ever in the place in the picture on the card? What would bring this Japanese executive to Kaisersburg, France? The answer wound up being a half marathon. And, and we could name, uh, take the, the starting number that, that was clearly visible and put it in. And the name of the person was Satoshi. At this point, Tom was very confident that he had the right guy. So he emailed Satoshi's company and he also contacted Laura. Of course, Laura had already watched this whole thing go down on Reddit. Somebody contacted me and said, you should look at this thread. So I headed over there and I was like, oh my God, like this is it. They found this guy. They really found him. Um, so I had a friend in Japan um, call the office to to let them know what was going on for one thing, but also to get his work email and make sure it was okay to get his work email. Um, and then they helped translate a message into Japanese. We sent it in Japanese and English to ask, are you this person? And he wrote back and said, yes. And that was it. They had finally found Satoshi. And it was just just too crazy because I, 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 I exactly then I, I knew that a lot of People would find this really cool and really interesting, but I was just in bed sitting there. So it was really weird because I was like a little bit famous in some weird kind uh, uh, corner of the internet. But here, yeah, no one really cared. Scott remembers hearing about the card finally being solved. And I didn't recognize the name of the guy that found him. Um... I knew he, I, I, was, I was pretty sure he wasn't, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't one of the old timers. I was pretty sure he wasn't, he wasn't anyone I knew. He wasn't anyone that I kind of recognized. Um, so, so immediately there's, there's this, this thought of like, who in the heck is this? You know, and the more I read them, just, uh, just the, the more, the more surprised I am, honestly, it's just, just more and more surprising the more I learn about it. Now that they had found Satoshi, they could get the code that he was keeping and finish his puzzle. Or at least in theory. It turns out over the last 14 years, Satoshi had understandably forgotten the riddle he was supposed to give to whoever found him. Because to him, you know, somebody just asked, hey, do you want to be on this card? He's like, sure. And then that's the last he's heard about it for 14 years. But the game organizers, of course, had it. So here is the clue that Satoshi, in theory, would have given to whoever found him. Which translates to this question. Who died after giving birth to flames? In case you love riddles and you want to try and figure this out, I won't give the answer just yet. So listen to the very end of the episode if you want to hear the solution to Satoshi's riddle. Now, there are two things that kind of blow my mind about this story. The first is that Laura spent 14 years working on this. Not actively all the time. It was always kind of in the background, but still, 14 years. I really did always believe it was possible somehow, but I think probably around the 20-year mark, I would have maybe given up. And for many of those years, she actually could have found out the answer very easily. So the other part of the story is that I actually ended up marrying one of the people who worked on that game. We met through this ARG. That's right. Laura literally shares a home and a marriage with a person who could have just told her who Satoshi was at any point. Well, I made him promise not to, right? Because to me, it would be, well, it would be such a waste of effort to just be told, right? It's like some, you know, you want to scratch your own itch, right? Do you ever hear something and you're like, wow, there are really just so many different kinds of people on this planet? This was one of those moments for me because it is absolutely unfathomable to me that she didn't just ask for the answer for all of those years. 
I think if my uh, if my wife um, has a secret, she couldn't hold it for me for like five minutes or stuff like that. And they just day in and day out. And yeah, I, I think this is really, really crazy. But at the same time, it's really sweet, right? I mean, like, what is love if not withholding the answer to a question from your partner at their request for 14 years so they can have the satisfaction of answering it for themselves? You know, there's a sort of sense of intrigue and mystery around alternate reality games and the sort of it, it's a promise that there's sort of more to life, right? There's there's an adventure just around the corner or there's this story layer over everything that you've seen every day and suddenly it becomes magical in some way, right? It's There's a promise inherent in that. And I think that we both really appreciate and treasure that part of those games. The second thing that really struck me about this story is that Laura spent 14 years trying to figure this out the traditional way. And it took Tom just a couple of minutes to find this guy using a public facial recognition system. The solution to the puzzle took me like, in reality, like maybe five seconds. It was just uploading the picture and that was basically it. So it's interesting, really, that, that, that it was ultimately solved through a very different means. That's, that's kind of cool to me, I think. You know, the original point of the game was to do it through six degrees of separation. Um, but ultimately, it was supposed to be about the power of the internet, right? Can you get this out in front of as many people as possible? And so in a way, we've done that. Um, it then has a further, more contemporary element with the facial recognition part of it. Um, so I'm I'm glad in some ways that it was the power of the internet ultimately that led to it, right? And not something random. You know, it was a deliberate search that let that came from having the exposure to the large YouTube audience. But at the same time, I don't know. I mean, there's something a little almost like disappointing about this kind of solution because it wasn't about connecting people or sharing or socializing or trying to form a great human chain. It was solved in a couple of minutes using technology that, as we have talked about extensively on this show, can have a real dark side. And yeah, it's, it's, I, I really do think that it's a um, harbinger of <laughs> privacy issues to come. The fact that it actually was possible to find this person after 14 years using a facial recognition search. Um, the problems, of course, lie in somebody who doesn't want to be found, right? This game was consensual. Laura is a game designer. She now makes these kinds of games and experiences. And I asked her if she would ever create a puzzle like Billion to One today. I don't think I would make a puzzle like this today. And it's mostly because to achieve the scale that you do need, the saturation, to make it work, right, to get it in front of as many people as possible, you're moving outside of your core community of people who actually understand the deal. It's a game. These are all real human beings and so on, right? The spread of it is where the problem lies. And I think there have been a lot of examples of things going viral, which ruin the thing that has gone viral, right? Um, fields of sunflowers where an uh, influencer takes a picture and then suddenly they have to shut it down because all of the flowers are being trampled or things like the silver obelisk in the desert, right? And people came and dismantled it because the visitors who were coming to it were not respectful of the terrain, right? And it was starting to degrade this all of the stuff that made that thing so beautiful. Um, so I think that is really the issue with a lot of viral stuff, you know, and, and anything, I wouldn't make something that had the potential for that. I, I cherish the small community things that I have been able to experience um, because I can see how badly wrong it goes when it, when things move outside of that community. In the end, this was a fun game where everybody involved was respectful and knew what was going on. But this kind of thing can easily get weird and kind of dark. Think about the true crime sleuths on Reddit, for example, who hound victims' families for more information. Or the people who have died trying to find a supposedly buried treasure. And when you add facial recognition into the mix, you wind up with a kind of classic science fiction trope, 
This idea that in the future, you could pick out anybody in a crowd, run them through a system, and find out who they are. And in fact, you might have already had some kind of experience with this sort of thing. If you've ever put photos into albums on Facebook or Google or Apple Photos, often the software will ask you to tag your friends' faces so they can categorize who is in which photo. And sometimes the system picks up a face from the background, someone you don't know. And I didn't like that because I, I liked my photo library to be really clean and you have those faces and then you had those and, and I couldn't even didn't know how to handle them. Okay, I, I just, I wanted to name all faces in the, in the pictures, but, but I, I don't even know who this is. And, and maybe if I have one picture from this person, it, it doesn't make any sense. But what if in the future, the system could actually tell you who that person was? What if you could find out just how many photos you're in the background of, staring at a castle or on the beach or at Disneyland? This is a question I've actually kind of been obsessed with for a long time. It's a puzzle I sometimes try and think about and like guesstimate. How many photos am I in the background of unknowingly? I used to try and guess this by thinking about how many tourist destinations that I had been to and try and guess like how many pictures I took, how many people were in the background of my photos, so they probably took about the same number of photos as me. But now that method doesn't really work because people take photos everywhere, on the street, at restaurants, in coffee shops, in bars. That's not a bad thing, it's just reality. Which means that you are probably in a lot of photos. We all are. But can we be found in those photos? This is what Julia and I wanted to find out, because it is possible that Tom just got really, really lucky in finding Satoshi. So when we come back, we are going to try and find some people in the background of our own photos. How do I explain? <laughs> How do I explain that I found you via facial recognition without making her run away screaming? Um, more on that when we return. Okay, so how well does this stuff really work? To test out this facial recognition system, PIMEyes, Julia and I both started with photos of ourselves. I accept the terms of service. Oh boy, okay. I'm not gonna read the privacy policy at this moment, but I am gonna open that in a new window because I feel like we might wanna look at that later. Okay, yeah, it found me in a bunch of places. It found my headshot. Actually, that's funny. It did find my headshot on a lot of sites because that's the one I use for professional purposes, which maybe I should have thought of before I used it as this one. Okay, so the photo that I uploaded is one that I use for like bio photos a lot. So that came up on the NPR website. It also found me at a couple of conferences at On Air Fest. It did find a bunch of pictures of memes that were made of my face when the Gamergate stuff was happening. The most disturbing one is there's this photo of me at a protest that I honestly didn't, like, I didn't know that this photo of me existed. I've never seen this photo of me before. So the system found our faces and found our faces in some places that we didn't even realize that it would. This is one reason why often people who organize protests suggest for participants to not take identifying photos of other people's faces. And in fact, this is a question that photojournalists are grappling with as well. How do you document a protest without potentially putting an attendee at risk of being identified and harassed? Facial recognition has also been used to find and out white supremacists who attend racist events. But Julia and I wanted to do more than just find ourselves. The real goal here was to try and find people we didn't know. So we decided to challenge each other with some pictures. We both uploaded some photos of us in various tourist destinations like the Liberty Bell, Disneyland, Canyonlands National Park. We also both uploaded a few photos of people who we've lost touch with. Julia went on a cruise with their family about 10 years ago and met some friends who they have photos of but haven't been in touch with. I uploaded some pictures of people I met in college or on a trip to Tokyo or a picture of my ex-boyfriend hanging out with one of his friends that I actually really liked but lost touch with. 
And then we both set off to see if we could find the other person's faces. I'm going to try looking for a couple of the ones from Disneyland to see if any of the people in these photos come up. It's not, it does recognize them as faces. They're not super clear photos. Let's see what we find here. Yeah, okay. They're this one, they're only low score results. That's not promising. So it doesn't give us any faces from the background for that one. Oh, okay. So it looks like it only recognizes the faces of the people you were there with. Robert definitely comes up. I'm now doing a photo from, it looks like, a national park in the Southwest. It did not see any faces in that photo. Okay. But I wonder if I just try, like, cropping it so that you can only see the other faces. Maybe that would be better. So it doesn't like that. It doesn't like that. Okay, let's see. Those are children. I don't know if I want to do it on kids. None of these people are looking at the camera. Hmm. So maybe the good news is that we did not manage to locate or identify anybody in the background of our photos. I was kind of surprised by, like, how bad it was at finding certain people also. Like, you know, it makes sense that for us, because, like, we both have, like, author photos on websites. And, like, and like for me, that's basically all that came up. Like, I was actually surprised by how few photos came up of me, um, other than those two weird ones that I had never seen before. But, like, for some people, and I mean, I think partly it could be because like the photo was not as good or it was someone in the background. But we did actually find other surprising and somewhat nerve-wracking things. Okay, let's try this photo. Okay, this person does look, this does look reasonably correct. Oh. This is an adult cam. Yeah, this is an adult, adult cam person. Uh, which is fine, just maybe not someone we want to out. So for at least one of the people we searched for, their online sex work profile came up, which, to be very clear, is totally fine. Sex work is work, and they should do whatever they please. But it was a really clear reminder that these kinds of facial recognition sites can pull up stuff about someone that they maybe don't want the entire world to know about. And we did have some success matching names to faces for people who weren't in the background of these photos. Well, I should say, Julia mostly had success. They did way better than I did at this little exercise. By the way, we're going to bleep out the people's names and identifying information that we find, because the point here is not to actually tell you who they were. It's to show you how hard or easy it was to find them. Okay, wait, I had another question, though, which is, so you have this photo called Do you know who those people are already? I know who one of those people is. Did you find them? I found one of the people, I think, because she has a blog called That is correct. That is her. <laughs> Amazing. I just wanted to be right, really, but Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you, are, you got it. You got that yeah, one for sure. Amazing. Yeah. Um I really thought that I would be able to find something for this person who was like your ex's roommate, but I don't think I found who they are, but they do have a doppelganger who's like a musician. For some reason, their photo was on this other contemporary Czech folk artists page. Oh, and then, okay, it was similar artists. Okay. That's right. That's him. Oh, that's him? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, then I found him. <laughs> I totally found him. Amazing. That's totally oh him. That's okay. totally him. He plays the banjo. Yeah. This was the one that I was least sure about. But so, yeah, I found, um, I found like, his Tumblr, his SoundCloud. Um, wow. Like, you wow. can totally get in wow. contact with him if you want to. Julia also found something interesting about a person in my Disneyland photos your friend that you went to Disneyland with, I did find a really funny, like weird photo of them at um, like a 2015 Brooklyn music festival. That's just like, he just like happens to be in the photo. And I was like, if you want to freak him out, you could just be like, hey, what were you doing at like the Northside music festival in 2015? And like, see how he reacts. Oh yeah. Um, I do want to freak him out. (laughs) 
Okay, let's see what Rose sent me. Have you ever seen this photograph of yourself? Huh. It is weird. I don't I don't recognize this at all. This is my friend Stan Alcorn. He's a reporter with the investigative podcast Reveal. I'm in the front row at some sort of concert, I guess. What shirt am I wearing there? Do we recognize any of these other people? Oh, you think it's a deep fake? It's weird. I'm at a concert with like, there's like an old guy next to me. I'm in the front row, but I'm like holding a beer. Yeah, I don't, I do not recognize this scenario. I don't think I've ever seen this photo. So it is very funny to me that Stan immediately thought that I had made a deep fake of him, which suggests that he knows me very well. But this time, in fact, it was not quite so devious. Like I zoomed in on my fingers because I was like, are those really my fingers? But it's not quite sharp enough to tell, like, do I have long nails or not? My hand looks a little weird, but I don't know. Maybe just hands look weird when you zoom in. Here's what he said when I revealed to him that this was not, in fact, a deep fake. It was instead somehow both less and more creepy than that. Oh, my God. It was from when I saw The Very Best with Andy. Yeah. The Northside Festival in Williamsburg. Whoa. Wait, so it just used a picture of my face to find this on the internet? But the thing that I think surprised both Julia and I the most was what happened when we looked for a picture of me as a child. When I was in middle school, I went to this summer camp. And at that summer camp, I had a couple of friends who I would always see there. And for a couple of years, there was this one friend in particular who I would always be really excited to see. And then, at some point, she stopped going to camp. And this is before kids had smartphones or emails, and our parents hadn't thought to trade information, so that was that. I never saw her again. But I have this photo of us from camp. We're probably like 12 or 13 in this picture. So I uploaded it first just to see if it would recognize my face when I was younger. Let's see, what happens if I do that? It 100% found me. That's actually really terrifying. Okay, yep, that's me. That's me. That's what I look like. It uh, definitely found me. So that's cool. And then I looked for the other face in the picture. (gasps) PPC? What is PPC? What is a PPC expert? has specialized in paid search for five plus years. She was voted number four most influential PPC experts of 2016. I don't even know what PPC is. I think this is this person. There she is on Facebook. I'm, this is definitely her. Okay, this is sort of stressful because now I'm like, do I want to reach out to her? Or is she going to think this is fucking creepy? She works like though. Maybe she won't think it's creepy. She has a Twitter. She tweets. She's she tweets. She tweets. She tweets. (laughs) Oh no. After going back and forth with myself for a while, uh, I decided to send her a message on LinkedIn. Hi. This is (laughs) sort of weird, but. Did you go to summer camp at as a kid? I think maybe we were friends at camp. I am, how do I explain? (laughs) How do I explain that I found you via facial recognition without making her run away screaming? Um, And that I want to talk to her on the phone send. Oh, God. I just sent her a message. Hi, is this Erin? It is. (laughs) Hello, it's Rose. (laughs) Oh, nice to talk to you after so long. Yeah. um, I am glad that you were not scared away by my slightly weird (laughs) messages. I get a lot of weird LinkedIn messages. (laughs) I was like, oh, this one is actually someone I know. I'll take it. 
Um, let me actually, I should show you, I should show you this picture. Oh my God. We're so Isn't that wild? Young. What do you remember about this summer camp? So I was thinking about that last night. There's a couple of things I remember. I am from a really small town, like in the mountains. And I think I learned about Blink-182 this summer. <laughs> and so I remember like listening to Blink-182 nonstop, talking about them. It was like, it was like old for everyone else and new for me. So I remember that. And I also remember there was a big dance. Was there a yeah, big dance yeah. towards the end? Yeah. And I remember like all year I was thinking about what I would wear to that dance. And I'm sure like, I don't think I had any problems. <laughs> but it was like, it was like the highlight of my summer was the dance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was like specifically nerd camp. I think we were like all not <laughs> very cool. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. <gasps> and the cicadas. Do you remember one year there were cicadas? And we, we would save all our money and buy that weird, like, juice with caffeine yeah. in the, <laughs> the soda thing. I do. I didn't remember it until you just said it. So I'm having, like, a – I'm having a memory happening actively. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember – now that, like, I was thinking about this, I was like, I feel like I remember being like, oh, I wonder if Aaron will be at camp this year because there was no way for us to know if the other person was going to be there until you like showed up and how many years I probably went for like three or four years and then in high school and actually in high school I went to boarding school so my parents stopped sending me to camp they were like you're not home very much anymore <laughs> like if you're not gonna be home during the year then you have to be home during the summer so camp ended for me gotcha yeah, I'm trying to remember because I remember my mom being like, oh, maybe we should have like exchanged contact information with these people. And I was like, oh, yeah, that probably would have been a good idea. <laughs> we like didn't do that. And so it was like, well, now who knew that like, what, 13 years later or however many years later, I would find you via facial recognition. <laughs> yeah, that was not on your mom's radar back then. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's on my mom's radar now, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Actually, I have to tell my parents about this conversation. I think they will be fascinated yeah it is very weird to me that the system was like it wasn't even like oh maybe it's this person it was like I found this person in like seven seconds here she is this is her name this is where she works now and I was like oh god I'm creepy how did you feel about that like be hearing that it was facial recognition you know not creeped out which is maybe concerning <laughs> I like, when you said it, I was like, oh, this is logical. Like, my, my phone looks at my face every day, no matter what expression I'm making and recognizes me. I use, like, face search and Google photos all the time, and it finds me. So I, it just felt, like, logical. Like, oh, okay. All right, I'm going to call my parents now and tell them about this. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. All right. Well, thank you so much. I'm excited we got to talk and that you weren't just like a delete message from crazy lady. <laughs> no, it was such a pleasure. I hope we hang out soon. And yeah, thanks for reaching out to me. Sweet. Thank you. Have a good rest of your day. So Aaron and I did exchange phone numbers and we are going to try and meet up in person sometime. I will post the photo that I used to find her on the Flash Forward page and social media as well. So you can all see it. Do you feel like this made you feel more or less nervous about some of this technology? I think it made me less nervous overall about the technology because honestly, it didn't really work that well. It was like the weirdest thing was seeing photos of myself that I didn't know existed, which is really like an older problem than the search engine existing. It's just kind of like being in public sometimes you're going to be in a random photo bomb or like a news crew took a photo of you that you didn't know about, um, which is just sort of weird. But it's like, yeah, that feels like an older problem, really, than the face searching thing. Yeah, it is interesting because like in some ways it's comforting to know that it's not like magic, right? It's not like any photo that you're in the background of, like any creep like us can just be like, hmm, I wonder what that guy's name is, you know? Um but at the same time, I'm disappointed. 
<laughs> right. So yeah, this is not magic. We are not yet in the sort of sci-fi minority report enhance kind of situation where you can be located in any picture that anybody has taken that you happen to be in. And I don't want to overstate how good this technology is right now. There is a tendency, and I think I do it on this show too sometimes, to give a little too much credit to the power of technology in the service of trying to scare people into caring about privacy. But at the same time, we were able to find images of ourselves and other people and identify them, even from childhood photos. And that's creepy enough, probably. So where does that leave us? And what does this mean for the future? Should we ban this technology? How do you regulate something like this? And what does the future of privacy look like? More on that when we come back. So what does this all mean for the future of privacy? Is there any hope for us if some random person like me can go and find images of anybody anywhere and see what weddings they've been to, concerts they've attended, protests they've been at? And again, this is not proprietary software. This is just a website that you can go to. At this point, what even is privacy anyway? Neil Richards has a great example that he uses where he says that like the most private thing is like a dream that you have at night and you wake up and you haven't yet told anyone about it. That is like your most is like the most private. And then, you know, everything like from that into being in a movie or being broadcast around the world or something like that. This is Dr. Kate Klonick, an assistant professor of law at St. John's University School of Law. And when I started thinking about this episode and the future of privacy, I thought of her, not because of facial recognition, but because she did this experiment with her law students a couple of years ago. So what I asked them to do, it was voluntary, it was ungraded. I asked them to basically, when we left, they left for spring break, I said, using only your phone and Google, listen whenever you are in public and see if you can de-anonymize anyone that is near you or around you based on things, do not eavesdrop. Like they were not allowed to eavesdrop. If someone was purposefully, obviously trying to be like, but if you're talking loudly on your cell phone in the midst of like a bank of seats in an airplane, like an airport lounge, like that was fair game, right? Or a Starbucks. Other things that were fair game here were things like monograms on someone's luggage or the stop they got off at on a train. Stuff that anybody could see and notice without crossing some invisible line into snooping. And they kind of came back from this experiment and break. And first of all, they started writing me in the middle of break and were like, this has been horrifying. I am horrified. You know, a number of people in my class observed people listing credit card numbers, social security numbers in public, giving their date of birth um, over the phone, their kids' dates of birth, like their home address. And so all of those things, like, I mean, those were easy cases. Kate got some pushback for this assignment when she wrote about it in The New York Times, mostly because people thought it was creepy. And they're not wrong. But the whole point was, like, that it was creepy. It was not unlike exactly what you're doing now. Um, and the entire idea was that this is possible. And don't you think that you want to know that this is possible? The point here wasn't to actually shame anybody for their public privacy settings. It was just an exercise to try to get them to understand how thin the valences of privacy are and that they're all based on basically societal norms like a collective understanding that it would be creepy to do that, and so don't do it. But that is like so thin. That is like so thin. And if you have a $200,000 GameCube that you're going to win, like you're certainly not going to respect that. And this goes not just for conversations in Starbucks, but also, say, photos you might be in the background of at Disneyland. I think that people, again think that those people in the backgrounds of photos are obscure. Like, they are, like, people that until there is a reason to identify them, if there's a reason to identify them, it doesn't matter that they, like, are in the, in, like, in the back. They are not the point, right? They are, like, that. They are the obscurity. They are just, like, the background, literally. And that is a reasonable thing to expect. It is reasonable to expect that someone who happens to be near you at Disneyland is not going to go home and try and figure out the identities of the people who happen to be in the background of their photos. But increasingly, it's possible. 
And there are a few situations in which that possibility is really scary. Domestic violence, stalking, abusive people of all kinds, having access to this is pretty terrifying. And then there are the automated systems working in the background who aren't exactly answerable to anybody who might be gathering up this information. And I think that there are ways now that this in the hands of government, in particular authoritarian governments, is absolutely petrifying. And we're not going to be able to, like, outrun the technology. The technology is going to happen. But we can, like, actually just make, like, rules about how the police use it and about, like, basic, basically how it's marketed to consumers. Do you think that, like, a random civilian, such as myself, should be able to just go into a website and put a picture in and find this stuff? No, I don't. Mostly I'm saying that because I just generally do not see the power or the good that comes out of individuals being able to do that. That said, not, nor do I, I especially don't think the police should be able to do that. And so, like, I think that, like, the, the more power you have in a society, the more restricted such technology should be. But Kate did have an idea for this that I really loved. Let's, like, imagine, like, a face, facial recognition librarian, Okay, and you like had like a facial recognition librarian and like she ran the AI, she fielded requests and she would like look at you and see your thing and you'd have to state why you wanted the facial recognition and like see like there would be some type of background check and then you could get it. Maybe you had a good reason. You wanted to find this person. You wanted to reconnect with them, right? And the person would be notified in some way that you had made this request of them. Like, that seems to me to be building in the frictions that we would want to see in this. Do I think that you should be able to do that while you're sitting here in your computer on, like, a Sunday afternoon and decide to go down some weird rabbit hole scanning on all of your, like, elementary school class photos? Like, probably not. Anytime someone pitches me more librarians, I am all for it, honestly. Flash Forward is hosted by me, Rose Evelyn, and produced by Julia Linus Goodman. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Hasselonia. The episode art is by Maddie Lubchansky. Sponsorships are handled by Multitude. If you want to discuss this episode or some other episode or just, you know, the future in general, you can join the Facebook group. Just search Flash Forward Podcast and ask to join. There is one question to make sure you're in the right place because sometimes people think it is a Facebook group for the sci-fi television show Flash Forward, and I hate to disappoint them. If you want to support the show, there are a couple of ways you can do that as well. Head to flashforwardpod.com support for more information about how to give and what you get in return. If financial giving is not happening for you these days, you can head to Apple Podcasts and leave a nice review or just tell your friends about the show. That really does help. Oh, and the solution to Satoshi's riddle is Izanami. So in Japanese mythology, there are two gods who basically created land and various elements of life on Earth. Izanagi and his sister slash wife, Izanami. These two gods drew the islands of Japan from the sea, and Izanami gave birth to several important deities. But she died giving birth to Kagatsuchi, the fire god. And her death, according to Japanese lore, was the first death in the entire world. Thus, the puzzle, who died after giving birth to flames? Izanami. Okay, that's all for this future. Come back next time, and we'll travel to a new one.